Christopher falls back is Swedish and was wounded in the line of duty serving with the armed forces of Ukraine. We're going to talk about his experience in supporting the war effort in Ukraine. We're going to talk about training Ukrainian soldiers uh, and we're going to talk about demining amongst other topics. Uh, I've been looking forward to this a long time. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, let's start with your personal incentives for uh, serving in Ukraine. Um, what were your motivations and really how did how and when did you get started? Well, I landed in Poland the 18th of March last year. Uh, so it was quite soon after the conflict started. Uh, but basically, I've been, I'm ex-army, ex-Swedish army, uh, been serving for over 20 years in the in the Swedish armed forces combined. Uh, and what I saw was basically a repeat of the 30s. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I figured after three or four days when you could see the Ukrainians actually holding the Russians off, because me as everybody else thought this was going to be a three-day thing and then this one going to be done. But when they were holding the Russians off and uh, when their president went out and asked for foreign help, uh, I actually realized that I can do this. I can go down and help them. So my first incentive was to go down and fight. Uh, but when we landed, I brought ar around eight Swedish soldiers with me down, or seven Swedish and a Norwegian. Uh, the rocket attack on Javovir has just occurred. So the foreign legion was basically shut down for a while. Uh, so we sat in Poland for a couple of days uh, trying to figure out what to do and didn't really get a, any good uh, options. So we decided to basically go to Lviv to see if we could find something. Uh, we got a contact in Lviv, uh, an, uh, a businessman actually who offered to help us get in contact with Ukrainian units and help us the best he could to actually help Ukraine. Uh, the fun thing about this guy, he's an ex-CEO for a really big European brewery. Uh, he is the ex-CEO, one of the biggest uh, cell phone companies in Ukraine. Uh, and he's a Russian. I think uh, I may know who you mean there, but yes, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, interesting. I'm, I'm not going to name him, but... <clears throat> uh, so he put us in contact with the... Uh, actually, Pravi Sector, which is one of the infamous Nazi organizations in Ukraine. Uh, and in, in this Nazi organization, the first guy I meet is an ex-Israeli paratrooper serving as a platoon commander. Uh, so the company that they were setting up then uh, is what we ended up training because they realized quite soon that, yeah, they have soldiers and there is soldiers coming in. But as a former platoon commander back home, I have been doing a lot of instructing and training. So, yeah, that's what I decided to do, actually, because, yeah, in the in the fight, I'm only a rifle. But as an instructor, I can actually do some big things training a lot of soldiers that's leveraging your skills leveraging your skills yeah. and experience and this is a bit of a challenge isn't it because um when i was in Lviv in august we went to see um uh, superhumans the rehabilitation center um and of course a lot of people even though they have multiple amputations really want to get back to the front uh, this yeah. is extraordinary uh atmosphere there rather than it being depressing people are uh, you know, finding purpose and and wanting to get back to the fight, but of course, with multiple amputations, that's that's difficult. Training, however, is an option open to people. But is there a real challenge? You know, unless you are experienced at training, unless you have actually done that and trained to be trained, as it were, um, is it quite difficult actually for someone who may have the experience to nonetheless communicate that effectively to other people? It is. Uh, it's extremely hard. If you don't have the skill set to actually train another person and you need to do this, you don't have a lot of time in Ukraine to train the soldiers. You need to make this training 
interesting and active so they actually pick up on what you're telling because you're you are stuffing them with knowledges uh, <clears throat> so in the beginning it, the first times we did this they told us that yeah you have 10 days you need to learn the soldiers the basic skills in 10 days that's that's impossible you can't build soldiers you can build fighters you can give them fighting skills and hints like that but you don't get the re repetitive training that is required to actually be able to do this on a soldier level uh, i know the ukrainians had a really hard time understanding what we tell told them when we said that you need to train on your own you need to repeat this and stuff like that uh, the easiest way that i found in the beginning to actually show them what we were talking about was taking <laughs> Uh, an AK-74, which has never been my service rifle, and show the magazine changes. It's shit boring. It looks really easy. Yeah, you, you can put that stuff in, but can you do it when you're scared? Can you do it when you're stressed? This is, this is the type of uh, things that you need to make them understand. Can you do it in the dark? Can you do it in the wet? Can you do it when people yeah, are screaming exactly. all around you? Yeah. When it's cold, when it's, yeah. And I think we succeeded fairly well in this uh, with a range of success depending on the units we trained, but uh, the army units or the units that actually knew they were going to be fighting within days, uh, they were very, very, very interested and very attentive when when we teach them. And like private sector, you had guys there that's been fighting since... 14 they were the best uh, pupils in every class they were listening they had been fighting they knew they could fight but they knew they did lack these small things that different a soldier from a, a fighter that's absolutely fascinating because one of my preconceptions would be that if someone has been fighting for that period of time, uh, maybe not permanently in the trenches, but coming in and out of civilian life, going back, doing service, maybe even on a seasonal basis, they may learn, let's say, bad habits. Or they may learn not even a bad habit, but a certain way of doing things. I would have thought they'd be perhaps less receptive to uh, another methodology. But actually, you say it's the opposite. That, that That's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But I thought, as you did, but... These guys been fighting for so long, so they knew they were lacking in certain important uh, parts. Yeah, they could shoot, they could throw grenade, they could do this and that. They were extremely well-trained uh, and physically fit, but they were lacking these small things that actually makes you a soldier. And they really, really wanted that. And can those small things in certain circumstances make the difference between life and death, between being, you know, badly injured and less badly injured or, or uh, you know, making a more effective fight against the enemy? What what are the differences that these make? They'll make you a lot more effective. It will make you more uh, structured as a fighter. Uh, you'll do things exactly the same. You'll set up things exactly the same. Stuff like that. Uh, it's extremely small things that makes your life a lot easier uh, on the front lines. Uh, it will make the interaction in the squads a lot easier. Everybody knows exactly what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Uh, so, yeah, it makes a difference. It does. Uh, it's not going to make a difference if you get wounded, how you get wounded. Uh, but it might make a hell of a difference in how you treat a wound, for example. <clears throat> so and that, that's yeah. the important thing. And this sort of consistency then of training, this consistency of, of methodologies and practice, um, is it been a challenge? Has it been a challenge rather through the war? Because of course, Ukraine's mobilized a lot of people. You have some who had NATO training, some who've been fighting since 2014, others who come fresh from civilian life. Is it still a challenge to get a degree of consistency of training and method across the entire, you know, what's become a huge military apparatus? Well, it has and it hasn't. Uh, most Ukrainians, when they come into the training we give them, uh, what I normally do Monday morning, I'll set up, I'll tell them what 
I'm going to try and give them. I'll tell them what I expect from them. Uh, and I'll tell them what I will not accept from them. Uh, so, for example, I get an instant respect. They do not mess around on my trainings at all. They do not have these discussion groups that the Ukrainians love to have. Uh, and I think that's because they expect uh, a movie picture of me as an as an instructor, a foreign instructor. Because if you put me in there, I'm I'm a sergeant, but they won't give me any hassles. They'll listen like preschool kids listening to the teacher. Uh, if you put a Ukrainian major in there, you're going to have chaos, in my opinion. For the Ukrainians, that no, that's normal. But for us as uh, Western instructors, that's chaos. Yeah, it's like uh, a more full metal jacket than... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> that's fascinating. And how do... I mean, this is going to be one of my questions. You've sort of partially answered it already, which I think is fascinating. And that is... How do Ukrainians respond to, let's say, sort of command structure? How do they respond to, you know, hierarchies and so on? Because unlike Russians, which are, you know, famously hierarchical, vertical uh, in their structure, but very little innovation goes from bottom to top, it seems to me that the Ukrainians have the opposite problem. They don't like verticals. They don't like to be told what to do. And they do like to debate and express their opinion and have that you know, heard above the chain. What's your impressions? Uh, they do. Uh, I mean, the Russians are whipped into submission. The Ukrainians are not. It, they are the opposite. Uh, on the other hand, if you made clear, make clear for them that we need to do this, this is for your sake, and I will not accept you fucking this up just because your personal issues, stuff like that. Uh, that's another thing we always bring up into the trainings is this individual thinking that Ukrainians have and I love them for having it and it's lovely in a civilian life but it does not function in an army uh, and yeah they'll give me these this absolute command right when I train them and stuff like that it's a bit harder when you get a Ukrainian in there uh, but normally it takes a couple of days and then they start actually swinging around a bit but you, you can't take that out of them that's that's a big part of the ukrainian personality uh, so you can't get it out completely on the other hand i think it's good because if you look at the russian army uh, a sergeant can't get up against an officer and saying you're wrong you can do that in the ukrainian army in the same way as we can do it in our armies back here in the west and that's that's a strength. Uh, if you have an experienced soldier, he will be listened to. Uh, I've seen several examples of this, both in training and at the front. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, even though it's annoying for us, he's used to soldiers actually listening. Yeah, they're allowed to have their own opinion, but they do not voice that out loud in training when you're trying to teach them things. Uh, it's it's the way you build a strong army, <clears throat> letting people know that, yeah, your opinion will be heard, you, it will be listened to. And uh, I think you, you'll have whipped dogs like the Russians. Uh, and I, concerning that, yeah, I, I actually feel so, sorry for them especially at the front, because me as a soldier at the front, if nobody were listening to my experience and, and my knowledge, I go nuts. Especially if you see mistakes uh, being yeah. made, especially if you see tactics which are highly profligate. And this is another aspect, isn't it, in that um, the Russian tactics are, by definition, rather brutish and, and and basic because one you cannot uh defer down authority down the rank you cannot give agency to people down the ranks because that goes against their entire system 
Yeah. That does mean that you can't do complex operations. Uh, is Ukraine therefore able to perform more effectively? Is it able to innovate um, right throughout the chain of command rather than having this sort of Russian, rather simplistic, brutish top-down structure? We had some issues with it uh, this spring when the when the offensive kicked off, uh, but that was not officers trying to be some small some sort of small uh, generals. It was it was basically a lack of knowledge. Uh, so yeah, in the planning stages and stuff like that, uh, we tried to give them as much knowledge as possible. Uh, but I've seen some examples where I, as a sergeant or a platoon commander, actually know more than company or battalion commanders. Uh, but the biggest issue, the way I saw it, was their inability to understand our doctrine of combined arms. Uh, you use supportive fire, you use dedicated uh, guns with artillery to actually open up hard points uh, and stuff like that. And that was, as I saw it, especially in the first days before they actually realized what we were talking about. Uh, <clears throat> one of the issues we had, uh, I don't think, and I didn't realize this uh, back then, before the offensive started, when when I was actually talking about these combined arms tactics, they did not realize or they, they did not understand what I was talking about. They were like, yeah, but we have rifles and we have uh, Bradleys or tanks and shit like that. That's combined arms. Uh, yeah, in a way, but you need to have the entire chain set up before you start. Uh, but yeah, uh, as the time progressed, they actually started to realize and started to fix these issues. And that, I guess, is important to have that those learnings transferred up the chain, because if you if you block that transition of experience and knowledge, you're you're never going to be able to take those lessons on board. No. And that's another thing. Uh, I understand why this issue is with the Ukrainian army, but many of the officers comes from the university uh, courses you can take to become an officer and then you don't need to do your military service because you do this but they're far from enough to actually train effective uh, officers some of the people who've done this know that they don't have enough knowledge so they will listen and they will listen very carefully they will ask questions uh, but some of them, yeah, questions are a bit frowned on in the Ukrainian system. Uh, they won't ask because it's not officer-like. And then you have the range up to the ones who actually thinks they're fucking Field Marshal Montgomery themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, back on the combined arms how important now obviously here you've got you've got uh, you know challenges or gaps in sort of training and, and strategy but how important is it in the well i won't use the word failure of the uh counteroffensive but the fact the counteroffensive didn't meet the overhyped ambitions for it how significant is the lack of air power and perhaps an underestimation of russia's defensive capabilities because of course right from the start of the war everyone's saying well the russians are incapable of, of anything um were their ability to create sort of these deep defensive uh you know fortifications minefields etc massively underestimated uh i wouldn't say massive we know that they had really deep and good defensive lines what we underestimated totally was the amount of mines they put out. I mean, me coming down there, we had drone recon and stuff like that. So we saw it because we came down before the the green season started. So we saw the uh, some of the mine lines they put out uh, on top of the ground. We did not see the buried mines. 
uh, and we had a fairly good uh, estimate where the positions were. But to be honest, you, we expected the Russian soldiers, I think, to be less motivated. Uh, me fighting with the 47th, uh, we ran head straight into some of the best soldiers the Russian army has. We did not have any mobilized troops at all uh, around the Robotin and stuff like that. That was contract soldiers all along. Uh, same thing, they blow up the dam. Uh, yeah, that was a really smart move of them uh, because that meant the info we got <clears throat> like a week in was that basically all the heavy equipment that was placed on that part of the front that was flooded, they moved and put in front of us. And yeah, uh, I know the first night we had maybe around 30 impacts every minute from hey, artillery, close impacts, and that's below 100 meters all along. Now, this our, is very uh, important. Factory. Because I've still, I still see what I consider disinformation being put around uh, that the Kohovka dam explosion might have been a failure of the structure due to you know Russians not maintaining it. It might have been an accident. Blah blah blah. This sounds far more that strategic. Was not an accident. No, that was somebody who really knew what he was doing, and the one who planned the defensive lines uh, down towards uh, Melitopol. Yeah, that guy did his homework, I can tell you that. Mm. You had armored killing fields with positions on three sides and extensive, really dense minefields in between. And it just kept stretching. You had artillery. You had tanks in the hidden positions. Uh, Anti-tank missiles everywhere. So, no, that is... That was a really, really well-planned defensive uh, strategy they had. We might have been able to push through fast and hard if there would have been what I consider a normal amount of mines, but... An air cover wouldn't necessarily have massively improved the situation. Would you have had more protection for mine clearance, etc., with air cover, or is this almost a moot point? No, I doubt that. In the beginning, that would not have done that much. Uh, yeah, it would have been nice to have the positions, the first positions bombed. But on the other hand, the amount of artillery shells hitting was tremendous on both sides. So, yeah, I don't think it would have done that much. Yeah. Uh, and strategically, do you think Russians, therefore, have already built these defences along the southern line, uh, either because they thought that's where the main thrust would be towards Crimea, or do they have a very acute understanding that if they lose parts of Donbass, that's not the end of Putin's regime necessarily, but if they lose Crimea, it's, they are, it's symbolically a, an absolute disaster and the end of Putin. Yeah. Well, I think Crimea is, for them, the most important part. Uh, Donbass, Luhansk, stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's money, uh, more or less. Uh, they can get money from there. But Crimea, that's, that's a symbol. Uh, and I think that both, you take the Crimean War against the English and French, you'll take the Second World War with the... Uh, Sevastopol battles and stuff like that. I think this is symbolically extremely important for the Russian, uh, how they see themselves. These, these are some pretty important battles for them. So, uh, so uh, and I mean, it's a victory. If we are going to have a clearly defined sense of what a Ukrainian victory looks like, there are many elements of that. But would you say that uh, taking Crimea is is high on that target list oh yes it is uh when i came down i figured that yeah we might be able to hold the russians off uh inflict enough casualties so they will actually start uh, negotiating uh and then maybe just maybe ukraine might 
club side uh, Crimea and get the rest back and it will be good with that but as the war has progressed uh, with massacres and war crimes and shit like that uh, to be honest to I don't think you can get the Ukrainians to negotiate a peace at all it's all or nothing for them and having seen the Russians in action um one of my questions was going to be the sheer brutality, the violation of every uh, code of war and its conduct, not only is being broken um, incidentally, but it seems systematically and strategically. This is, you know, war crimes are, are, are a feature, not a bug of the Russian way of doing war. Uh, I think it's both. If you look historically on the Russian army, this is what they do. Uh... Yeah, I understand that they were pissed on the Germans when they started occupying uh, the German homeland uh, during after World War II. But <laughs> look at any war the Russians been in, or where there's been Russian soldiers, they do this shit. This is what they do, uh, and I think that's a combination of uneducated soldiers, uh, which are not led by what I would say competent officers. I'm not going to piss on Russian officers like that because, yeah, they obviously have some competent officers, but for us, it's sergeants or NCOs uh, holding the soldiers back. I mean, 18, 19-year-old kids, they will do dumb shit when they're scared. So you need somebody actually holding them back. That's what our, our uh, NCOs do. Uh, the Russians, no. They don't. Uh, you can take Butcha, for example. Uh, you had FSB setting up torture chambers and stuff like that, getting people in. But I would guess the majority of the people getting killed on the streets was killed when the Russians pulled up. They just fired anything they wanted. Uh, and yeah, if you have a normal structured army with discipline, you're not going to have those incidents. But if you let kids go when they're scared, yeah, they're going to do sh dumb shit. That's not an excuse. As a normal human being, you shouldn't be doing that. If you have a, a normal upbringing or if your society has certain norms, that's not going to happen. But if you don't have that, yeah, then you're going to have the Russian army. And a complete, perhaps, unwillingness to intervene or impose, as you say, those standards, because it's perhaps seen as advantageous for this stuff. It's a form of psychological pressure uh, to combine. It with... And it's. I think this is. A very clear example of what you get when you have an army that builds on a really, really strict hierarchy and where you. Piss down. And you really piss down on the pyramid. So, yeah. That's quite an image there, a pyramid of piss. That is the Russian army in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and you have been involved in training many thousands of Ukrainian troops. Um, what would you say then is that component of the training, both yours and what you've seen in the Ukrainian army, to prevent... Um, war crimes being committed to make sure the Ukrainians keep the upper hand. They've got to defend themselves, of course. And I think I'll ask you in a minute about this because I feel their hands have been tied in some instances. But how do you try to prevent uh, this kind of dumb stuff happening, as you say, um, as part of your training program? Well, uh, it's quite easy. After Bucha, when that came out, I was in Kiev training soldiers in Kiev. And... I've never seen soldiers that furious. They wanted to massacre every Russian they saw. Uh, so what we did actually was reel them in. As soon as we had guys coming with dumb suggestions, let's do this, let's do that. We just reel them in, have them group up, and then we explain exactly what's going to happen to Ukraine if they do this. <clears throat> What's going to happen when our press gets hold of 
Ukrainians doing dumb shit and what our politicians is going to do when that comes up. And they have a very clear understanding of what the Western aid means to Ukraine. They know that they can't win this war without that help. So telling them that, yeah, you do that, fine. First of all, you're going to have to live with it. Second of all, when our press, press gets a hold of that, they're going to start an article that will have our politicians shit their pants and then you won't get a bullet. And Russian propaganda, Russian disinfo is built around trying to provoke things that can then weaponize. It doesn't matter if Russia is doing the same or worse, they can latch onto it and weaponize the uh, propaganda. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, they, they already know this. So you just need to remind them. Uh, and what I see as the important part is actually doing this, telling them this, so they do remind, remember it. So it doesn't get a foothold in the units that, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to get payback. No, you're not. <clears throat> you'll take your prisoners to war. You bring them back. You'll have the justice system. Check them through. If they are war criminals, yeah, then they'll get convicted in a court, not by you on the field. That's the important uh, issue to actually push on them all the time. That's a very and, powerful message, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far I, I've heard about dumb shit being dumb, done, uh, I've never seen it. Uh, on the other hand, the fighting is extremely brutal. We normally don't take that many prisoners. Uh, first of all, the Russians are scared. They think they're going to be murdered by us, so they don't normally give up that easily. Uh, <clears throat> look at the interviews with the prisoners that we actually do take. They get phone calls, they can call their parents, they can call their wives, and they get put in a camp where they, yeah, they do fairly simple and easy labor. Basically the same that our prisoners back home do in prisons here. Uh, and yeah, they get fed, they get clothing. So normally there's not that much of a complaint from the Russian prisoners of war. I've heard prisoners who actually don't want to go back home. They'd rather stay in the Ukrainian system until this war is over because they don't have to fight and they get fed. If they know their history as well, um, anyone who's been a prisoner of war and then goes back, if this is Stalinist times, they'll be sent to camps or or, or worse, uh, killed on the spot. Now, I don't know if Putin's Russia is, is going to quite go to that extent, but if any of them are smart and really understand their own system, they're going to know that they don't really probably have a place in either the Russian army uh, or, or it could be far, far worse for them if they go back and start expressing uh, anything that discredits the political system in the army. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've actually heard or saw an interview the other day with uh, a Russian soldier. Uh, when he contacted his wife, uh, she had been told that his, he was uh, wanted as a defector. So his army unit put him up not as a prisoner of war or a KIA, but as a defector. And that means, yeah, he can't go back to Russia. He was terrified to be put in a prison exchange uh, program because he knew that, yeah, me coming back, I'm, that's going to be an issue. That's seven to ten years uh, in penal, yeah. penal servitude and then uh, a label for, for life. Um, yeah. Robertinia sounds like a an absolutely horrific experience was that the most intense fighting and was that where you were wounded i mean I, I i do have to ask about your your experience and your rehabilitation because i think it's a very important aspect i think of this that so many ukrainians do get uh you know medical attention appropriate medical attention which is perhaps denied to soldiers on the other side but what was your experience well uh, i got injured on the way into robertin about a kilometer and a half outside uh, before we reached the, the village in itself. Uh, we were actually trying to take positions to get into the last frontal protection of Robotin when I got injured. Uh, 
And yeah, I must say my experience of the Ukrainian healthcare is excellent. Uh, I'd say I got just as good of a treatment in Ukraine that I would have gotten back home uh, in the first uh, period. Uh, <clears throat> they did, yeah, basically everything right. They had me sed sedated for the first couple of days, uh, getting shrapnels and shit like that out of me, uh, putting up uh, like a construction thing on my arm uh, because the bone was uh, broken in the arm. But, and then coming up to uh, Dnipro and later Kiev. Yeah, uh, even though I don't speak Ukrainian that much, uh, and most of the doctors seeing that I am in the army, not in the foreign legion, I get put in different hospitals than the legionaries does, uh, and they don't speak English, period. Uh, but Google Translate works, and the, the treatment is great. So the only thing I can say about my experience of the Ukrainian uh, medical system is that it's it's great. Uh, I'm really pleased. This is this is a fascinating angle. I'm going to dig a bit deeper because I've been listening to a lot of material that has come from the um, uh, Russian uh, journalists who are abroad. And one of the stories they've been digging into is apparently the conditions for, you know, not that many Russian soldiers potentially make it out alive, but actually the scale of the number of people who are wounded means that there are uh, potentially tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Russians who are flooding the Russian healthcare system. And if anyone has lived in Russia, you know that that, that the provision of care is not necessarily um, equal. Uh, often you will need to have contacts. Often you will need to be able to pay money to get the right kind of care. Uh, corruption is a huge problem. And if you don't have money, then, then it's a real lottery. The Scenes they describe sounds almost like, you know, 18th century Crimea. So it's horrific, horrific circumstances of way, way more bodies than, than there are physical sort of beds or care and attention. Um, now, one of the Russian propaganda angles, of course, is that Ukraine is deeply corrupt and somehow that justifies the invasion. Do you think the quality of care you're describing here uh, really counters that propaganda argument? Uh, because you cannot have a deeply, deeply, deeply corrupt and broken system that nonetheless uh, offers the kind of care you've described. Uh, no, I don't think so. And sure, uh, I got offers from friends in Ukraine to actually put me into the more private uh, medical care, but I did not see that being necessary. Uh, the guy I talked about before in Lviv, he actually offered to pay for me getting swapped to another hospital, stuff like that, in Kiev to, yeah, a high end private. And no, because the hospitals I were in, I know I got moved to Kiev really fast, but that's because they do not want foreign soldiers in the frontline hospitals. They want them out of there fast because in Kiev, it's easier to have them protected. Uh, and yeah, I do understand that. <clears throat> But I've also seen the medical chain in from the front lines and back. And they have a really good uh, triage system. If you're not badly wounded, you'll stay at the, the rear medical station at the front and get your treatment there. If you are badly wounded, like me, I wasn't that far from dying. They actually bypassed the first medical stations and got me directly into the hospital. And that's not because I'm a foreigner, because the people in the ambulance picking me up did not have a clue about that. But they knew I was badly, really badly wounded. So they got me into the care I needed as fast as possible. Uh, <clears throat> the other guys ended up at these uh, triage stations and stuff like that. But they still got into medical treatment fairly fast. 
Yeah. And um, what is the dependence there? I mean, out of these this infrastructure that's being created, um, how much of it depends on the so-called civil society, on volunteers, on non-state actors to create this network? And how involved is the state in this frontline uh, medical uh, support, military medical support? Uh, well, the entire army are dependent on foreign help. And that's easy. They had a 200,000 army before the war. Now they have an army of over a million. Uh, that means the Ukrainian state, they can't really handle that without help. Uh, I mean, no army. You can take England, Sweden, or what you want. We can't handle that either. So the, the volunteer support is essential. Uh, and it has been. Uh, the Ukrainians are catching up slowly. Uh, but they are still dependent on the volunteer support and the volunteer help. Yeah. Uh, so they still need the continuous support. A lot of our medical equipment that we had were donations from uh, both uh, states and private uh, operators. So, yeah, it is essential. And the quality of some of those donations has been questioned. But as the war has gone on, have you seen um, sort of quality thresholds and criteria being imposed? So even though you might get a lot of stuff coming in, um, you wouldn't necessarily get everything to the front because it may not be like, a, for instance, tourniquets. You don't want sub substandard uh, medical gear ending up where it could put people's lives at risk. So have you seen a, a gradual sort of improvement in uh, imposing these quality standards? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And the Ukrainians have done a great work there. Uh, in the beginning, we saw a lot of Chinese tourniquets that breaks when you put pressure on them and shit like that. Uh, the Ukrainian... Uh, states or authorities really, really quickly picked up on that and started refusing that shit or you using it as training materials and stuff like that. Uh, and that's really good. Uh, they set up some really, but uh, it's really private uh, initiatives to actually manufacture really good tourniquets in country. Uh, they don't have the abilities to do the big volumes. Uh, but they do some really, really good stuff. I've heard uh, as well that uh, on, on the corruption side, you have a uh, fairly unique zero-tolerance approach to corruption, bureaucracy, yeah. inertia. What's been your experience of that? How much of a, I would say, a sort of uh, a drag effect does that have on Ukrainian success? And how have you been able to cut through and, and deal with these sort of hangovers of, let's say, the the uh, Russified Soviet system. Yeah, I've seen some of it, uh, and it was worse last year. Uh, on the other hand, the Ukrainians have actually dealt with it or started to dealt with it, uh, especially on the lower levels. And the people on their own don't really accept it as much anymore. Uh, another thing I think we should take in account is that the Ukrainian way of looking at uh, corruption is not our way of looking at corruptions. Uh, it's more hands-on uh, money exchanging hands, stuff like that. Uh, it's not as much as for us, yeah, me doing you a favor and then you doing me a favor is also a type of corruption. They don't really see it that way in many cases. Uh, so <clears throat> The same as, as with the so-called Nazi organizations. Uh, I think we need to look at that with another set of eyes. Uh, and the same goes for the corruption. Uh, and they, they have really started to push down hard on the corruption. Uh, they changed laws. They set up a lot harsher penal, uh, penalties for corruption and especially if the corruption is aimed at the army uh, they actually have some really really harsh punishments i think that if you steal or embezzle army money the sentences start at seven years in prison now and yeah that's gonna stay 
And similarly, they've been introducing, um, I believe, um, uh, electronic uh, sort of transparency procedures that track equipment, especially heavy equipment and munitions from, you know, delivery through to the front line and potentially when they're used, destroyed, etc. Um, so if you're seeing, again, a sort of sophistication increasing of how the, um, you know, the transport delivery and uh, tracking of uh, various equipment as well as its usage um, has gone through. Because, of course, for, for Western governments, that's a big Russian propaganda talking point uh, is, uh, you know, weapons ending up somewhere else being sold off. Um, there's very little evidence that's happening. But what systems are put in place to, to make sure that doesn't happen? Uh, they have, like you said, the electronic systems. But uh, I've been contacted by the security police and they asked me and other foreigners for help actually checking up foreigners that they suspect doing things like this. Uh, they are extremely uh, careful about where and how they use things. Uh, there was a story going around last year about when the first uh, French Caesar systems got in, the Russians got their hands on one of those. And that was rumored to have been some sort of uh, sales thing. And they, that, as far as I know, that guy basically went to jail without passing go. Uh, no, they are extremely careful and extremely scared weapons to end up outside of Ukraine and but at the same time it's a battle it's a war you you can't have a hundred percent accountability for everything so if something disappears because yeah you, you have criminal gangs and stuff like that that will roam a battlefield trying to get their hands on shit uh, and especially above a place like Kiev where you had really hard fighting in, in an urban environment yeah you're gonna have people moving around and if they get their hands on something yeah that could end, end up on the wrong place and this isn't just a, a factor of it being in uh in in eastern europe this is i'm sure this sort of stuff happened at a tremendous scale in world war one world war two you know this is just a a feature i guess of a, a conflict of this scale oh yeah uh, but if you take World War II, for example, the, the amount of guns that the Allies dropped to resistant groups, a lot of those guns are still laying around in Europe, in basements, on attics, stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, weapons are going to float around. Uh, I think the Ukrainians are doing this fairly good. Uh, everybody remembers the truckloads of uh, rifles that they distributed in Kiev last year. And you still don't have shootings with military weapons in town. Uh, I mean, me as a sergeant, I can't even go with a gun in uniform in Kiev without the police asking for my papers and why I'm having a gun. So they are really, really strict. Uh, same thing. They were selling uh, civilian weapons at that period and giving licenses out for those weapons without really doing all the checks that Ukrainian law requires. Uh, as soon as that calmed down, the police went back and started to going through all of these. And actually, if you did not check all the, uh, the dots, they'll come and get your gun. And they did that a lot. That's incredibly systematic. Um... Now, I know that your impact, you've trained many thousands, you've clearly uh, commanded the respect of the Ukrainian forces that you've worked with. Um, I believe that is that is certainly sort of recognized. How important is it for Ukraine that it's just not them in this fight, that uh, not just that they're getting support from Western governments, but that individual people from the West are there um, you know, with their backs to the wall, helping Ukraine and have a degree of understanding about the Ukrainian, uh, you know, the, the dilemma they're in and why they're fighting for their survival. How important is that, both practically speaking, but also in morale terms? Uh, I think that's very important. 
the army part is easy. They see that they're not alone. They see that we help them. They see that we utilize uh, our bigger knowledge to do as much as we possibly can. Uh, and I know the guys, when I came down to the front, they were really surprised that, first of all, I, I was one of the first who came down. Uh, and that I was willing to actually go with them to do dangerous shit. I had the option to actually sit in a headquarter doing nothing. Uh, that's not the way I, I do things. Uh, I promised them in training that I would do what I could for them at the front. And I think I showed them that I did that. Uh, so yeah, I I get respect from that, of course. But uh, what's even more Fantastic, to be honest to you. Uh, when I was in hospital, the amount of civilian and private Ukrainians willing to come into hospitals, when the word got out in Kiev that I was actually laying at a normal hospital and not the Legion hospital, uh, where they don't really have this much, I had a steady stream of uh, visitors coming in asking what I needed if I needed anything, if I wanted anything, it was not, I, I, if I wanted to, I could have been laying on my back in that hospital bed and just eating grapes and drinking sodas and people will, would bring me anything. Uh, I don't think that would have been a, a, a good way of doing shit. I'm not there to get my own pleasures fulfilled. So no, but, when I came into the hospital, I had nothing. They cut everything off me at the, the first hospital. So basically all I had was a, a pair of underwear. Going out from there, and I said no, or tried to say no to things. I had more than I could carry. So basically just spread it out among the other soldiers in the hospital, the Ukrainians. So they got as much as, as possible as well. Uh, and then, yeah, getting into a hospital bed with uh, four or six complete strangers. They got some food from their family, so their families came up with food or something. No issues. It's like, come here, come eat, 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 eat. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues uh, was injured before me, uh, and she had a broken bone. She came up with food for, for me and for the other guys coming in with boxes or bags of food on her crutches, stuff like that. It's No, the, the people in Ukraine are extremely hospitable and friendly and grateful for all the help we give them. Same thing in training, uh, being out in small villages, uh, farm villages, uh, living in in houses people come with food people come with anything and they will not accept anything in return uh, being in the army yeah we were supplied we had food stuff like that uh, we had to cook it on our own boohoo but <laughs> same thing we we ended up with having an excess of food that was quite large and trying to give that to the people in the villages and they, no, they just refuse. You're soldiers, you need this. If you go along the roads in Ukraine, you'll see stacks of the food, canned food along the roads. That's for the army. The army have cars going by picking this shit up and stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's a fantastic country. That That's incredible. I mean, that really, it's very moving. It also highlights why Ukrainians are fighting and why it's worth us supporting them uh, not just to survive, uh, but to triumph in this uh, and to prevail over Russia. So really my last question here is, it seems clear now that we've been approaching Russia with the wrong mindset. We have fallen prey to their terroristic nuclear threats. We have not given Ukraine, even though a lot has been given, it is not enough to ensure victory. And actually the provision of equipment has not been aligned with a clear concept of what victory means. In your mind, what needs to change and what do we need to do about it uh, to ensure a clean Ukrainian victory? 
Well, to be honest to you, I think we should open the floodgates completely. Uh, I understand our government's unwillingness to give the most modern or the newest of our weapon systems, but we have a shitload of a bit older equipment that is not as classified and stuff like that anymore. Send it. Get our ammo factories working on three shifts. Supply them with the ammunition and the grenades they need. I mean, they are fighting for us. I don't think anybody's dumb enough to think that if we let Russia win this war, it's going to stop here. It's going to end here. It's not going to. He's going to go on the next and the next and the next. Uh, and I mean, look at the demands he did a couple of years ago. No NATO expansion. I'm deciding if these countries can do this or do that. That's not how the world works. Uh, I mean, he's he's actually been talking about invading the Baltics and Finland and stuff like that because they're old Russian colonies, blah, 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 or Soviet. Come on, this guy needs to go. He's just as mad as Hitler was. Uh, I, I don't really see a difference between them two. Uh, it might be hard for some people. Yeah, Hitler was in the middle of Europe. He fucked around with countries that is very familiar to us. This guy's doing the same, but he's a bit off to the east, and we don't really know as much about Ukraine, Georgia, stuff like that, but it's still European countries. So, yeah, we can't have that kind of megalomania on our doorstep. And of course, there's a lot of countries that come within this potential threat. It's uh, it's the European ones you've mentioned, but also there's Moldova that's not yet part of NATO, but there's Central Asia as well, Kazakhstan, yeah. and and all those other countries are are in the firing line. Yeah, they are, uh, and I mean he's been messing around for a long time, not only with Ukraine and Georgia, Moldova, as you said, is taking like one fourth of that country as well, so. He has Russian troops there. That's an issue for us all the time, having to have troops on that border. Uh, yeah, of course, Russia doesn't have that many soldiers in Transnistria, but they are still a threat to some pretty large Ukrainian cities, and especially Odessa. And and uh, from what we can gather, the original plan was to take the entire southern coastline and hook up. My last question here, do you think Putin's ambitions have changed at all? Or is he still really intent on tearing Ukraine to bits and dominating it? Uh, no, I don't think it's changed at all. Uh, just look at the, the rhetorics they use. Like, these are Russians. This is the part of Russia. Ukraine has never been a country blah 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 it's no he, he's i don't think he's gonna give up uh i had a hope for this war to end like that's more or less like the second chechen war with the russian mothers saying no and stop uh but no he suppressed every opportunity for that basically i think either putin dies or ukraine fucks up the Russian army so much so the <clears throat> Russian generals actually do a military coup. So this is the time I... for the gloves to come off, in your view. The West yeah. really needs to take this seriously and arm. Yeah. Arm up. Give them as much as they need. Yeah. I understand the... that there is a fear for giving them two powerful weapons so they can start striking long inside Russia. Uh, on the other hand, the Ukrainians are extremely careful with doing that in a way that doesn't really upset Russia that much. I don't think we're going to see, even if we give them Gripens or F-16s and stuff like that, I, we're not going to see bomb runs into Russia. We're going to see these planes being utilized as fighters, <clears throat> uh, protecting uh, the fronts, and we're going to see them do attack runs on the front lines or just behind. But I I don't think Ukraine's going to start doing bomber stories into Russia and stuff like that. 
that that's a very powerful message to convey and of course to make you Crimea untenable which is one of the the key strategies behind that um well I wish you luck with what you're doing what you're doing seems to be fantastically important both for Ukraine and of course the individual troops who you have contact with um what you've done already is of tremendous importance and courage Christopher thank you so much for sharing your time experience and and insights with us yeah, thank, thank you for having me. That's been a huge pleasure. And uh, yeah, very much look forward to potentially speaking future and potentially even uh, meeting up. Yeah, that would be nice.